This show is brought to you in part by the University of Advancing Technology. UAT is a unique technology-infused private college that was founded by a geek for other geeks. Our mission is to educate students in the fields of advancing technology to become innovators of the future. UAT's campus culture is devoted to continually nurturing a thriving geek community where everyone's personal lives and professional aspirations revolve around technology. The beginning of the 21st century is an exciting time to be in the technology community. Current subjects of ongoing research and scholarship at UAT include robotics and embedded systems, artificial life programming, information and network security, game development, and other areas of advanced technology. Check them out on the web at www.uat.edu. Shoutcast streaming provided by Versus the World Productions, www.vtwproductions.com. Hello, this is John Scalzi, and you're listening to Versus the World Radio. What happens is the make you the common cold better virus meets up with the cure cancer virus and becomes the oh, you're dead, we can fix that for you virus. <laughs> and, uh, and because it's a virus, it's always there. And that's one of the other things I like. I mean, <coughs> we were having this conversation with somebody after the uh, zombie panel the other day, which is, okay, if you have something like this and it's a virus, you know, shooting the zombie in the head that's currently attacking you is going to keep you from being attacked by that zombie, but it doesn't create an overall cure. And so she deals with that. She deals with the kind of society that you live in under those circumstances. For example, things like reaching over and tucking in somebody's shirt tag. People don't really do that. You don't gather in groups, you know, large, this size. You would never have Comic-Con because you don't get that many people together because all you need is one person's virus to tip over into active and you've lost the whole building. And so it's just, um, it's a really thoughtful book. The second one, Deadline, comes out in um, June and there will be a third one and the overall title of them is the News Flesh Trilogy and the author is Mira Grant and the book is Feed. If you do like feed, for what it's worth, Mira Grant's name is Seanan McGuire, and she writes under that name as well. Um, Seanan is S-E-A-N-A-N, isn't that right? Like Sean Ann. Um, I would recommend, since we're talking Hugo's, what the heck, let's go with Paolo Bacigalupi because his name means infested by wolves. <laughs> uh, he's a lovely man. Uh, actually, last year, I, I was up for Hugo against a handful of people, including Cat Valente. And she and I had this little private fist bumpy moment, you know, because like if, if, we, we each wanted it, obviously. But if I don't take it, I hope you take it. Because if either one of us had, had done so, we would have only been the 10th woman since the Hugos began to take Best Novel. And instead of losing to a, a, a dude, we lost to two dudes. We lost to China Mieville <laughs> and Paolo Bacigalupi, who collectively won the award for Best Novel. But Paolo did for The Wind-Up Girl, and I haven't read China's The City in the City. Um, which, which was the other one that beat us. Me and Gail and uh, Kat were joking about start, uh, Gail Carriger were talking about starting a club of people who'd lost awards <laughs> to Paolo Bacigalupi <laughs> in China Mayville. Like, That'd be a huge club. <laughs> we could start a listserv. Um, but I, I did read The Wind Up Girl, and it was really, really phenomenal. And I've, I'm, you know, God, you got to lose to somebody. <sighs> well, at least it was somebody really, really good. And I'm not embarrassed to have lost to them by a long shot. But Wind Up Girl is uh, also post-apocalyptic in its way, but it's set mostly in Asia. 
And the, the thrust of it basically is that the world is starving and that calories, specifically calories, are controlled by large corporations. And kind of watching the world try to reassemble with this one resource <clears throat> kind of being, being waged war over. So it's really very, very good. It's a little depressing. It's not happy, which is really weird because Paulo is this really happy guy. He's very, very smiley. He's just adorable. Finally, I guess he's got to have a, like a pressure valve. <laughs> Very dark little heart in that man. But if you ever get a chance to go see him or hear him, he's lovely. But Wind Up Girl, Paulo Bacigalupi, if I try to spell it, I will mess it up. Um, but just attempt to Google it. Uh, 25 of the top 40 search terms leading to my webpage are misspellings of my name. Some of which are so egregious. I think the people at Google must be wizards to have actually directed people successfully to me. Uh, so that would be that would be my initial first round recommendation, Wind Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi. And Wind Up is hyphenated, I believe. I don't think it matters if you're just on Amazon or whatever. It'll give it to you anyway. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it, um, in terms of current, uh, especially Hugo-nominated books, um, completing the set, um, Ian MacDonald's The Dervish House, uh, part of an increasing uh, spotlight um, of uh, modern SF onto... Uh, societies other than Western culture. Um, it's a fabulous um, future look at. Um, God, where is it? It's Turkey. Oh. Turkey. 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 Um, future Turkey. Um, and it, Ian's kind of doing a um, a tour of uh, the future world, having uh, just done Brazil, and having done India in the past. And um, it, it, it's. Um, very characterful, it, it's full of brilliant description. It's all in the um, uh, present tense, and it feels just pow, 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 um, really, really in the moment. Um, I should also say that if you want all those books, um, the best thing to do, probably, is to get a supporting membership for Worldcon in Reno, because supporting membership to Worldcon in Reno gives you the right to vote in the Hugo Awards, and anybody who can vote in the Hugo Awards gets sent all of the nominated novels in ebook form, uh, along with all of the short stories, novellas, novelettes, large, large chunks of the comics, large chunks of the related books, tons and tons of stuff for free in return for, what is it, $50? Or I think it's more than that. More than that. It's, more, it's like 100, 150. Right. But you get to vote in the Hugo's. Well, yes, that's the important thing. But um, so, yeah, the, the three great novels, and um, Connie Willis and. Blackout. Yeah, and uh, Lois McMaster Ball, Joel, the other two. Yes. But um, anyway, that, that's uh, kind of completing the set of the. Okay, now we've covered the Hugos. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of good stuff last year. It was, mm. it was, yeah. it was a good year. It was a good year. You've got more books. Okay. Pick another from the pile. I feel like we're opening presents at like a wedding shower. <laughs> <laughs> one at a time. Um, okay. Uh, oh, you got Holly's new one. Yes. She's um, really nice. Okay, Holly Black, who, this is young, this is actually technically young adult, but uh, it's, almost any age can enjoy it. Uh, I don't think I'd give it to an eight-year-old, but. Um, Her young adult stuff can be pretty adult. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, she does skew older. But this is the first book of, Holly wrote um, a series, a trilogy, I don't know the name of the trilogy, but it's Tithe and Valiant and Ironside about fairies in modern day New York. Yeah, the modern something. Yeah. Modern fae or something, I don't remember. Some, yeah. Um, 
I wish I remembered, but I'm sorry. I, no, it's okay. I, I was like, the modern. I don't have it. Of course, all. we could also just look up in here and it might say <coughs> modern fairy tales. <laughs> I got one word. <laughs> well, enough of another one. Interchangeable. So, yes. Anyway, um, this is called White Cat. And um, the concept in this book is that this is, it's like our world, except magic really does exist. And the big thing is magic, there's all different kinds of magic powers. And you're, you're either born with it or you don't. You can't learn it. You can't be gifted with it later in life. It's, it's strictly genetic transmission of some kind. Um, and there is kind of a semi-scientific explanation for the, the um, there, it actually talks in, in, in the book about the genetic mutation that causes it. But the thing is, magic only works by direct touch. So everyone in the world wears gloves. And there's almost never any direct skin-to-skin -skin contact because you mostly, because magic working is illegal in the US. It's been outlawed. And everybody is terrified of it for the most part. So everyone wears cotton gloves on their hands. And if you see an ungloved person, you automatically assume that that person is very, very dangerous. And so magic has become essentially the provenance of organized crime because it's illegal and there are people who can, um, they, they can work luck so they can cheat at casinos extremely successfully and completely undetectably. Um, there are people who use their charm to con you out of. And yes, there are people who can kill you with a, touch, with a single touch. And the main character in this is a, boy, is a kid who is from a family of magic workers. And his family is, of course, attached to a major mob family. But he has no powers himself. He's kind of the freak of the family. And his only wish is to be more or less normal, which is difficult when, like, your grandfather is the most notorious mob assassin in, like, half a century. And your mother's in prison for conning several rich men out of millions of dollars. And so he basically is living in a, he's going to a uh, boarding school in Connecticut and trying to live like a normal kid and running into some difficulties with that. <laughs> and the second book is just now out. It's called Red Glove. And the third book will be out next year. And I don't remember the title of it. It has a color in it, but I don't yeah, remember what it is. Black. Yeah, it's like Black Mask or Black Hand or something. Yeah, like something remember. of that kind, yeah. But it's it, it really is very good. It's a really cool way of dealing with magic. Um, it, because it's Holly, it's very like well thought out and well planned. And well planned. And the characters are really believable, and it really is kind of a, a neat look at, at the world and what it's like. And I don't think she said the title, so just I'm in case sorry. for the broadcast. White, white cat. <laughs> Trying to, trying to make sure everybody who's participating, who isn't actually here, also mm -hmm. gets covered. So as long as we're doing books for people of a variety of ages, um, I really, really like The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland, which is Catherine Valente's um, print version of what was already an award-winning book because she originally released it in serial form, which is a long time traditional way of telling a complete story. It goes all the way back to Dickens and perhaps even earlier, uh, but Dickens is, is really well known for it. Um, but, uh, but so she told this tale of the girl who circumnavigated Fairyland in a ship of her own making in Chunks Online and won the Andrea Norton Award for Books for Younger Readers. And um, 
it's, it's a great book for all ages, partly because um, it's accessible to anyone, but I think older readers will have a certain appreciation for it that younger readers might not, just because the prose and the structure very much harken back to, um, say, C.S. Lewis or Lewis Carroll or that era. Uh, the language is approachable but rich and descriptive, and, um, and the magical things that happen are often familiar. Um, you know, there, there are places where you're kind of like, oh, well, that, that is not terribly dissimilar from things that I encountered in Narnia or encountered in Oz or whatever, and, and it's very deliberate on Cat's part. Um, and, uh, and in the print volume, it has lovely, lovely illustrations. Um, and, and it just, it's like, I mean, each chapter has a, a title and a little uh, tiny two-line synopsis of, of what happens in the chapter. And um, one of my favorites is uh, the, and I'm not going to say it right, but Wyverary. Um, and in which September, who is the uh, girl of the title, is discovered by a wyvern, learns of a most distressing law, and thinks of home, but only briefly. Um, and, uh, and the wyvern is um, the product of crossbreeding between a dragon and a library. And he's a wonderful character. Um, he's one of three siblings, and each of them has encyclopedic knowledge but only to a certain extent. So he's very helpful <coughs> if you need information on anything A through L. So for example, he can be helpful with autumn or fall, but he's not so good on spring and summer. So that's the girl who circumnavigated fairyland in a ship of her own making. I would say um, probably eight and up. Uh, the language might be difficult for um, younger readers. If they're not good readers, it might be a better reading with book. The word circumnavigated is in the title. <laughs> I'd like to point that out. Uh, no, I, I would agree with you. Cat's got a flair for language like almost no one I've ever met. Um, also for Holly, Valiant is my favorite, Holly Black. It's, a, it's about a kid who uh, <laughs> heads off to a baseball game and her boyfriend can't go and she gets her backpack and goes home real quick and finds her mom and her boyfriend making out and uh, then kind of runs away. So Holly's stuff skews older. And I don't mean making out. Are there any kids in here? <laughs> no, her mom and her boyfriend are on the couch having sex. So, yeah, that's where it starts. And then she goes and makes friends with the troll under the Brooklyn Bridge. And her stuff is really, 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 really good. Um, as for, I'm trying to think of like something I've actually been reading lately, and the truth is I read a lot of nonfiction because it is so much weirder than fiction. <laughs> so much crap has actually happened that I could never make up in a million years. Um, and one that's really stuck with me lately that I read not terribly long ago was called The Murder Room by Michael Capuzzo. It's about the Vidocq Society. And if you're unfamiliar with the Vidocq, Vidocq was a, was a French detective from the uh, 18th century who kind of in, in a number of ways, he was actually an ex-crook. Who, who was offered the chance to come in and, and work for the, you know, the French police force if, and not go to jail. And he finally went, well, okay, I know what these guys are doing and I know how these guys work. And, and he started applying basic scientific theory to, to crime fighting and was very, very good at it. So <clears throat> there's this group called the Vidocq Society that was founded by these three guys. And I'm not gonna try to remember their names off the top of my head. But kind of the running conceit through the book is that when you have an epic tale, you have the king, the wizard, and the knight 
<clears throat> and it's these three guys, and each one kind of fits one of these archetypes. And what they do is they solve cold case crimes. And uh, they've created this brain trust of these smartest, like, wickedly smart people in the entire world. And they have these conventions where they get together once every year or two. And uh, you're allowed to petition the Vidoke Society, and they will, they will take on your case. You have a ridiculous success rate. It is crazy, crazy high. And um, I don't know. I, after I put the book down, and I loved it, and it stuck with me for ages, I was looking it up on the internet, and I found out a bunch of people hated it. <laughs> because the guy kind of has a really sometimes a little overwrought writing style. Uh, but I was so fascinated with the content that I didn't really care. And, and the thing that kept coming at me, when you talk about superhero stuff, and trust me, this is related. When you talk about superhero stuff, there's a cycle to superhero comics and stories and video games where your, your first superheroes are gods. And eventually you start bringing them lower and lower and lower and lower to you. And eventually, a lot of people said the end result of that was Watchmen, where your superheroes are people like you. And then what happens is it reboots, and then you have Superman again. And then you start working down, 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 then you're down to kick-ass. And then, bam, now we've got Captain America and Thor. You know? well, then we have Thor and Captain America. And, but but there is this, it, it goes in cycles. And you kind of get this idea that humanity's the bottom rung. <laughs> we are as bad as it gets, as low as it gets. And when I put down that book... I, I kind of walked away from it with this weird glow because it's this group of this hundred and some odd people who are at the bottom rung and they're like, you know what, fuck that, and reaching for the next rung up and improving the world with, the, with their sheer laser brain power. And the opening chapter is, is about a guy who petitions the Vidoke Society. And this is all true. It's all nonfiction. It's very well documented. A guy who petitions the Vidoke Society because this friend of his was murdered some years ago and the cops aren't paying attention and blah, 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 blah. And uh, one of the guys stands up at the end of it and totally Sherlock Holmes' his way to the fact that the guy petitioning the Vidoke Society is the guy who killed him. <laughs> and he's, he's this huge narcissist who gets his kicks from dragging us out in front of the cops and getting them involved over and over again. And that's how he gets his jollies. <laughs> and he couldn't prove it. He's like, I don't have to prove it. And everybody in the society kind of confers, and they're like, no, we think he's right. So we're calling the case closed. We're going to hand this over to the authorities. And... Uh, Godspeed. <laughs> so it, but, and sometimes they take on cases that are so old. And, and their, their motto is, you know, we're not fighting for the victims. We're not fighting for the police. We're not fighting for the survivors. Our, our, our client is the truth. And it, it's just, it, it's, I found it extremely affecting and interesting. It's called The Murder Room by a guy named Capuzzo, who's done a couple other projects as well. But um, I don't, that, was, that, was, that was the one that I loved. And it's a big red cover. I think it's in hardback. I don't think it's in paperback yet, so. Did Your those turn. guys exist before Conan Doyle? I don't know. Well, Vidoc did. Yeah. Um, I, and it's V-I-D-O-C-Q. It's, it's the French movie, Vidoc. Um, but uh, no, 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 because the society was only founded back in the 70s, oh, now right. that I think about it. And I, I'm a little, I keep meaning to look up one of the founders uh, at the very end of the book. It turns out he's dying of cancer. And I haven't, I, like, I don't want to go look it up online and find out if he died. <laughs> I was like, no, I just, I'm just going to believe he's living forever. It's, he's out there doing his thing. But anyway, very interesting. I liked it. So. Um, I, I thought I'd go for my favorite book. Um, it's uh, G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday, which Neil Gaiman also speaks highly of, so don't just take my word for it. Um, it's um, uh, several things in one. G.K. Chesterton, this extraordinary polymath who's best known for the Father Brown mysteries, but just... Uh, orthodoxy, which is also 
Absolutely, yes. Writes the hell out of anything. Um, he's, um, the Man Who's Thursday is about, about, well, it's a very short book, but it's about a million things. It's about a um, undercover British policeman in, at the start of the 20th century who finds himself accidentally part of a gang of anarchists and decides to make the best of it and try and get to the heart of the organization. It takes place over <laughs> about a day. And... Um, he gradually gets to the heart of the, uh, the organization in a journey which is most, li m most like the journey to the heart of darkness um, in an incredibly re well-realized um, London of the time. Um, it goes across the channel to France. It's an amazing chase thriller, for one thing. It's like the 39 steps in a lot of ways. It's just pow, pow, pow chasing. But there are two gargantuan twists. One of the twists has been ripped off in many, many places in many, many ways, but I won't spoil it for you now. But you'll think, oh, that's the twist I heard about. Oh, but I've heard that before. Um, as he gets to the center of this organization. But then the chase continues back in Britain, ends up at an enormous Ian Fleming-style house party where a gang of people who want to rule the world are gathered, and it gets very, very weird to a terrifying point of singularity that will make you go, arg, arg, arg. <laughs> and at the end of the book, he nip pulls it all tight with a tiny little knot which says, and actually, it, that was all true. It's an amazing, amazing piece of work. You will not believe what it ends like. <laughs> you sound very evil when you do that. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I'm, 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 I'm actually chaotic good. <laughs> I just have a bumper sticker that said chaotic neutral means never having to say you're sorry. <laughs> it's the pure neutrals you want to look out for. G.K. Chesterton. I was given orthodoxy as a graduation present from one of my professors. He's much more interesting. The Romance bloody. of Faith. That was yeah, the title of it. Sorry. He's, he's kind of like the good C.S. Lewis, mm -hmm. is G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> I would agree with that. Yeah. And the Orthodoxy book was no doubt great help in your becoming a priest. <laughs> it was. It was. It was very, very useful to me, as it turned out. You know, when my wife is a priest, I'm just going to introduce them yeah. and go, priest, <laughs> priest, priest. <laughs> It'll be like Oprah, you know. <laughs> She me. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have Christopher Priest there as well. And we'll have Christopher yes. Priest. And perhaps Ramsey Campbell and really confuse Somebody it. Somebody whose last name is Pope. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see that happen. <laughs> More books. Yes. More books. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to switch gears and talk about it's. This book is. Um, it's also young adult. This is skews a little younger than Holly. Um, but again, I really enjoyed reading it. This cover is dreadful. I know it, you pick it up and you look at it, oh, girl in sparkly dress doing a model pose. Um, Ashley Cherie, please mm -hmm. do the model pose because you... Yeah? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what model pose? I don't know, like that. Oh, uh, no, I'm yeah. sitting down. Anyway, <laughs> Paul will do the model pose. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. But like the, the weirdly like, inverted yes. elbow that goes like this. Yeah, I, don't... I should slip my off the shoulder. There you go. <laughs> That's how it begins. Just, to look, just like this. Yeah. Next America. thing you know. Uh... And thank you for this edition of Next, America's Next Top Hugo winner. <laughs> um, no, uh, the cover makes it look like a model or an American Idol type of story, and it isn't at all. And that's what I thought when I first picked, I picked it up to look at it. But basically, the book is called Wish. It's by Alexandra Bullen. And what it is about is this girl, her twin sister has just died in a tragic accident. And her family has packed up and moved across the country from the Boston area to San Francisco. And 
it's um, because they're trying to cope and they thought maybe a big change of scene would help and and um, and and so they've moved to San Francisco and she's going to start a new school and her twin sister was like the outgoing one and she's always been the shyer one the quiet one the bookish one and anyway she goes out to find something to wear to go to this mixer party that her new school is having and she happens upon a tailor shop uh, with a dress in the window and it turns out that the woman who owns the tailor shop makes magical dresses and each dress grants one wish and there are some rules to this you can't wish for things like world peace or any of that but yes but each dress grants one wish and so she um, and the only people who ever find the shop and find her find the shop are people who really need the shop for whatever reason but that only the people who really need wishes find it <laughs> and so she goes out in her dress and what she wishes for is her sister to come back and it's not what you're thinking because that's what I would have thought too so it's a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, sorry. Um, that would be a fantastic <laughs> turn of genre. <laughs> 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 yes. Yeah. But actually, but, but what happens is, is it's her sister's, not really so much of, as a, of a ghost, but her sister's spirit and her sense of her sister. And uh, she talks to her throughout the book, and things happen. And really what it's really about, it, it's this neat story of... Um, of kind of learning to cope with this and learning to cope with life. And um, it's also a really neat story about uh, female friendship, which in a lot of stories, especially YA right now, there's not a lot of that. And it's all about, oh, we have to fight over this boy, or it's all, or, or, I just have to think about this boy, or whatever. And it's not like that. And it's just really a neat book and a neat story. And it's a well worked out, um, and it's just a well, it's also a well worked out magic system. Uh, and uh, so I really like it. Again, it's called Wish, and it's by Alexandra Bullen. The second one um, is called Wishful Thinking, and it is out in hardback right now. Um, so that's that's Wish, but it's 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 a very different and much in its own way much less. I mean, it is serious, but it's much less serious than Holly or some of the other things. Yes. Well, what she says is, I want my sister back, is, is very specific. Well, the thing, essentially when she says that, she does not realize that the dress is magic and will grant her a wish. She doesn't know. She's thinking to herself, and she happens to say it out loud. Because she's at a party, and it's a fairly large party. She's not good in this kind of thing. That was her sister's thing. And so she says to herself, I wish my sister was here. And but there's no monkey's paw. No, there's no monkey paw or thing. sorry, no shambling brains. None of that. <laughs> I wish my sister was here, not as a zombie or a member of the undead or a ghost. But a ghost. <laughs> Did you ever see that episode of the X Files with the genie? Oh, yes. I'm yes, sorry. and and Mulder makes this huge long <laughs> legalese paragraph, and it still doesn't work. And it still doesn't work. Yeah. Go ahead, your turn, man. All right. Um, there's a band. <laughs> I just keep thinking about how sad it is that those of you who are not here are missing the fact that Nadine and I would be <coughs> paralyzed and unable to speak if we were unable to use our hands to talk about our books because <laughs> we both gesture a lot. Um, so I, I contemplated whether or not to recommend San Diego Noir, but because on the one hand it seemed 
a little egotistical because, um, oh, edited by Mary Elizabeth Hart. Uh, but on the other hand, I thought, well, if we could all I'm not willing, if I'm not willing to talk about how much I like these stories, that's kind of counterintuitive because the reason the stories that are in this collection are in it is because I really like them and I really believe in them, and that's why they were selected for this volume. So um, this is, I think, uh, one of the rare non-science fiction or fantasy options. Sorry. That's your conscience on the phone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> it was my editor thanking me for plugging the book. <laughs> my publisher. Nice um, Thank you. Uh, Akashic Books has uh, been doing this series for about six or seven years. Um, they're a small independent publisher uh, and they started with Brooklyn Noir. Um, and what they do is they do locale collections of high quality crime fiction. Uh, short, short stories, and there, of course, has been L.A. Noir. Um, it's gotten pretty broad. They've published 40 volumes, and so you get places that you don't necessarily think of um, for you locals. If you haven't picked up Phoenix Noir, it's edited by Patrick of the Poison Pen, and it's got some great stuff in it, including an Edgar Award-winning short story by Luis Urea, um, who also wrote uh, the story that his shorthand for was Chicano Elmore Leonard um, for the San Diego Noir volume. But, uh, but so it's a collection of authors writing stories set in specific areas of the locale. So uh, the San Diego story has stories at the beach, stories in Del Mar, uh, stories in Hillcrest, uh, and a story set at Comic-Con International that starts at the current Comic-Con in its location in the convention center and actually moves back to the El Cortez, which is a nice touch for those of us who've been attending for a long time. So um, it's my baby and I'm proud of it. Yay. Okay. Well, let's see, speaking of noir, um, Paul was nice enough to tell his, his favorites. I have two pieces of comfort reading. And, uh, and I have several editions of each to kind of an embarrassing degree, actually. I love Dash Hammett. I don't really care for Raymond Chandler, sorry. Don't, I, I, Philip Marlowe's kind of a whiny ponce, in my opinion. <laughs> Give me the Continental Op any day. Um, my favorite Dash Hammett book is Red Harvest. I've read it probably 50 bajillion times. And uh, it's the Continental Op, and you never really know what his name is. He never tells you. He's, you know, he's just here to do a job, and when people mess with him, he's gonna mess back, and it's gonna hurt. <laughs> And it's, um, it is a really, really phenomenal study in, in not just uh, group dynamics and, and organized crime, uh, but, but it, it's very um, rugged individualist in its own hilarious way. And I really, really strongly recommend it. Um, it was written around 1930, I think. The other is Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None, which was released in the UK as Ten Little Indians. And it was one of the first really good mysteries I'd ever read. And... Um, when Agatha Christie's on, she is on. And uh, some of her stuff's kind of hit and miss, but when she's good, she's really, really good. And uh, I had never, um, I, I, God, the, the Hollywood movie, the black and white, just totally flarbed up the ending. But um, <laughs> I saw some children come and go, so I'm going to try and be careful. Okay. Um, I'll just pretend I'm teaching kindergarten again. 
<clears throat> but I loved, 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 loved it. And, the, and the, there's this one paragraph about two-thirds in where it just starts, one of us, one of us. And you're getting the internal monologue for everybody who's still alive left on this island, and one of those people is the killer. And it was, it was one of those books, I, I read it when I was still a teenager. I wasn't allowed to read spec fic, but I was allowed to read mysteries. And uh, it was one of those things that taught me about how to tell stories. And, and it's this wonderful, self-contained piece of fiction. I really, really love it. Uh, that and The Murder of Roger Ackroyd was probably the other one that, that taught, me, taught me about the unreliable narrator <laughs> quite extensively. So I love those guys. And, um, oh, I was going to mention something else. I can't remember what now. Oh, that nor. Well, but anyway, those are my two favorite pieces of comfort reading, and, and I have a bunch of different editions of them, and I love them. So there you go. I'm going to ignore the dwarf thread because I keep being set homework at the other, this end of the panel. I go, oh, no, I can't do that. Um, I'm, um, Christopher Priest is my favorite author. Um, oh, there you go. <laughs> Who I am not. <laughs> she's very close to being Christopher Priest, but not quite. No. <laughs> um, it CH. And Ramsey Campbell thinks she is Christopher yes, Priest. We were talking about that before you guys arrived. um, The Prestige was killer. The Prestige is killer. Um, I think my favorite book of his is um, A Dream of Wessex, um, which is... um, Christopher Priest is a very, very English SF author of of very high quality. He arose during the 1970s in the New Wave. Um, He writes very, very clear, simple prose that just steps you gradually along in fantastic scenarios. He's very easy to read. Um, he can be quite disturbing. Um, a Dream of Wessex is... Uh, uh, Christopher Nolan, the uh, film director, filmed uh, The Prestige, which is perhaps um, Christopher Priest's best-known novel. Um, uh, the two dueling magicians, you know the story. But A Dream of Wessex is about a group of academics who get together to create a mutual dream between them. And the dream starts to have a dream inside it, and that starts to have a dream inside it. So I think Christopher Nolan read quite a few Christopher Priest books. <laughs> mm, it's very Inception indeed. And um, uh, interestingly, the academics between them, uh, this is a book written in Britain in the 1970s, their idea of the perfect dream world they create between them is a Soviet-invaded England many, many decades after the fact um, where a part of the Dorset coast has split off, uh, become an island, and become the kind of Hong Kong of the Soviet Empire, where people from other empires come to visit and they can play in casinos and enjoy the beach. And everything's calmed down. It's a post-Soviet conquest, everything's become okay book. And, um, it, it, but uh, it's the story of our heroine, who... Um, is one of the researchers on the dream who's had a terrible, abusive previous relationship with um, a guy who joins the project as her superior, enters the dream beside her, and they forget who they are inside the dream. So she knows she's going to meet this guy. Neither of them will remember who they were, and she's terrified about what might result of the interaction between them. It's all told in this nice, steady manner Um, It's a tremendous, tremendous book. Um, It's also a metaphor about the process of writing, particularly writing science fiction. It's basically about a bunch of science fiction authors, that is, the the professors who get together and dream up a utopia that might leave the rest of us going, that's a utopia? (laughs) (laughs) And um, there's all these wonderful little moments to get out of the dream. Um, Somebody goes in with a quick memory that will get them back and shows a spinning mirror to somebody in the dream and says, come back, come back, come back, and 
It's just a tremendous, tremendous book. And it's all set in Dorset, which Christopher, Christopher Priest doesn't hesitate to set his incredible SF narratives in really mundane bits of Britain, <laughs> which gives it a strange feeling. The Space, uh, the space Machine, his other great work, it's been, it's been um, uh, grabbed and uh, raided by all sorts of other texts, so it doesn't seem very original now. Um, that's the Time Machine and the War of the Worlds are in the same world, in the same universe, and our hero is a traveling salesman who stumbles into the time traveler's house, has a romance with a lady who lives there, they go off on the time machine, they glimpse the fact that the Earth's been invaded by Martians in the future, they end up on Mars, they come back in a projectile to Earth, and they manage to survive the War of the Worlds together thanks to the time machine. It's an amazing... People would call it steampunk now. Um, it's an amazing piece of work, but it's been raided by all sorts of popular culture, so it doesn't seem as... Um, and, um, yeah, so that's Christopher Priest, and I, I think he's tremendous, and he's still around, and I go up to him every now and then and go, you're tremendous, and he, he fears my love for him. <laughs> I've met Cherry Priest, I say. She, he, he, he says, is she like me? I say, yes. Toads. <laughs> well, I do set fiction in very mundane sections of America. So. Back down to your end. Oh, okay. <clears throat> um, let's see. Well, I could go ahead. You can and pass. We can just pretend it's like a. Game well, no, show. I was just debating whether to go off, but I, I won't because I did bring the book. <coughs> Technically, this is the second in a series. However, the books are all are all episodic, and it's not like continuing. It's more just What's that it they're. Called? It is called Cast in Courtlight. Um, the first book is called Cast in Shadow, and we sold out of it, which is why I don't have it right now. Um, basically, it is. It takes place in a magical world in a city where there are. Uh, two immortal races and four mortal ones, and uh, they all coexist mostly peacefully, largely thanks to the rule of the emperor. Um, and since the emperor is actually a dragon and like eats people when he's ticked off, it pretty much mostly works. But the um, main character of these is a beat cop in this city, and she. Uh, was a street kid, literally, a, you know, uh, she had no parents and grew up in a really horrible section of town. And uh, she has become a street cop. And she's never going to rise very high for the most part because she, uh, at, for example, there's one scene in which uh, she gravely, gravely insults a dragon, which is just not something you want to do unless you want to be munched. And another dragon interferes to, for her by saying, Lord, Lord, she didn't mean it. She's failed all her racial interaction classes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the dragon in question knows something about her and says, I know. I know, and says, it's OK to ask me that. I'm not going to answer. Don't ask any other dragon that. But uh, so, she's, so she's just not the kind of type of person who's ever going to be a, a higher level person. But she is a beat cop and she moves among the city, but because of certain things that she knows and certain powers that she has, she inevitably gets dragged into things that she is not really well suited to be dragged into. Um, and then among the time, she's out on the street catching pickpockets and arresting magical scammers and other things of that kind. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's a fascinating book. And, and one of the other brief little reasons that I love it is um, Michelle Seguera, who wrote it, the dragons often mostly spend time in human form, but she hasn't forgotten con con 
conservation of mass. So it looks like a human being and it talks like a human being and it may look like a very tall, thin, elderly man, but if he enters, a, if they walk into a building that's not built for them, the floor crumbles. And, it's, it's, and there's actually some funny bits where one of the dragons accidentally does something not thinking about, oh, this isn't one of the special buildings that's actually built to hold me, and oops, now there's a hole in the floor. So that's fun too. But it's sort of urban, it, it's, it's a type of urban fantasy, and, it's, and, and if you like things like um, Rochelle Mead or Caitlin Kittredge or Patricia Briggs even, um, it's, it's very like that, but it is set in a magical world, so there's a little, it, as opposed to ours, so there is a little fantasy about it, yes. Um, I personally wouldn't for a lot of reasons I won't go into, but um, it is, it, it is uh, but I, I really like the series and I think a lot of it. Um, the books are still coming out. There's another one coming out this, this year called Cast in Ruin. I believe it's Cast in Ruin. Sounds right. Um, and uh, I, as I said, really like them. And there's enough information in each one that you don't need to read them in order or in any particular way and the stories within the books are all pretty self-contained. They're mainly a series in that it's about Kaylin and her circle of people that she works with and people she knows in her world. But it isn't going to end on a cliffhanger and you don't have to read <coughs> and in my opinion you don't have to read them in order or anything of that kind. Yeah. Michelle Segarra. And uh, this is what the second one looks like. Uh, so my next one is a book by Sophie Littlefield. And Sophie writes a number of different kinds of books. Uh, if you're a mystery reader, you may know her for her Bad Day for books, Bad Day for Sorry, Bad Day for Pretty, uh, pretty um, in which uh, she has a uh, highly entertaining uh, sort of vigilante character who um, helps those who need help but in a pretty unorthodox uh, middle of the country kind of way. Um, she also has a young adult book, Banished, and she has a, a follow-up to that coming out this fall and um, it's young adult paranormal. Um, but the book that I wanted to talk about today is After Time, which is her post-zombie apocalypse book. Um, and actually choose two post-zombie apocalypse books on purpose, but um, I just really like this because in a genre that's seen a lot of activity now, I just felt like it kind of offered something different, although ironically, because I'm sitting next to Sherry Priest, mm -hmm. um, part of the theme is a mother who has to go rescue her child in a post-zombie apocalypse world, but is not at all like Bone Shaker. That's okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I stole it from Aliens, I don't know what to tell you. And Terminator, and uh, a few other things. So, um, one of the interesting things about this is up. that the narrator uh, has, has been uh, huddled in a library, yay, with a bunch of other refugees and her daughter and they're doing the survival thing and they're taking shelter and they're being careful and everything and one day they're just not careful enough and they get attacked by a group of zombies and she is taken away 
but somehow she survives. She's neither consumed nor does she become a zombie. And so there's some questions about what has caused the difference. Is the world just transitioning so that whatever is causing the zombies uh, to reproduce and attack is transitioning away? Um, there, there's an interesting uh, response on the part of the government, which is the government says, we, we know how to keep you safe from turning into a zombie, which is you consume this really nasty little plant, and that's about, they kind of like just kudzu the states with it, and that's about all that's there. But we're starting to see regular natural plants come back, so there's a question of is the earth healing? Is she on the tipping edge of people being able to heal themselves? Um, and because she survived this, somehow um, managed to make her way back, she knows that she needs to get back to her daughter. Her daughter's a toddler, and she gets back to where she was taken from, and they say, your daughter's gone. This cult took her because they can take care of her, and so she has to make her way to where the cult is and convince the people in the cult uh, that, you know, really her daughter is best off with her, assuming that she can, and there's just a, a lot of, um, sort of ideas about the person that you are under those sorts of very trying circumstances in it, and it's just very nicely written. So that's After Time by Sophie Littlefield. Okay. Um, let's, see, wait, let's see how much time we have here. We've got another 10 minutes. All right, I'll be quick. Um, Joe Lansdale, speaking of people who do fun mysteries in, in uh, odd and mundane places in the States. Joe and I actually used to live not terribly far from each other. Um, he's a lovely man with a Texas accent that'll stop a clock. And uh, I re strongly recommend The Bottoms, which won an Edgar a few years ago. And uh, it's set in the 1950s. It's kind of a, in its way, it's a Southern Gothic, but it's mostly a murder mystery about a, about a family and uh, serious racial tensions in the 50s in, in Southeast Texas. So that's a good one. And I would also recommend one of Ramsey Campbell's newer ones. Actually, I would, I would recommend pretty much any Ramsey Campbell. Uh, my two favorites by him are The Overnight, because I worked in a bookstore for years and years. It's about uh, some monsters that take over a bookstore when the bookstore crew is locked in to do an overnight, which we would have to do once every blue moon, where you have to you know, fix all the stock, do all your, all your calculations, make sure everything. You know, it's really tedious, and it's not like a lock-in when you're in high school. It's just awful. But in the course of an overnight, monsters take over the store. And Grin in the Dark is, um, god, I don't even know where to start. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's this. Um, it's Ramsey Campbell's take on humor, which is not to say that it's funny. It is about humor, and it is about the fine line of context between humor and horror. Uh, and, and, and because, you know, a guy hits another guy with a hammer. Is that the Marx Brothers, or, or is it Stephen King? And this book is about that a lot, and it's really, 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 really uncomfortable, uh, mostly in a fantastic way. He, he slips a little bit toward the end where the protagonist is finding it difficult to, to communicate with people. And it kind of in turn, it becomes a little difficult to communicate with, with the reader. But at the same time, it's so effectively done that you stick along. He has this knack for doing really aggressive, painful discomfort like nobody I've ever read. He, he just has a gift for it. But there's a point where he devolves into chat logs there about two thirds of the way through, and I'm like, OK. <laughs> but it's. Um, it's absolutely phenomenal, and, and I can't recommend it strongly enough. It's, but it is, it is one of the creepiest, weirdest, s simply scariest books that I had read in years. That and um, 
one, one more recommendation, The Terror by Dan Simmons, which is about the Lost Franklin Expedition. Because that wasn't freaky enough. Let's add monsters. And uh, I was a kid when they first found some of the, uh, the, the bodies from the Franklin Expedition, the, some of the first guys who died and were buried along the way. And now they think they had lead poisoning and all this exciting stuff. But um, I, it, it, the terror requires some patience. I had to read it. I was proofreading an edition for Subterranean Press that had come pre-copy edited. Thank you, HarperCollins. Um, so when I had to send back 60 pages, single-space typed of errors I had pulled out of this brick, um, I still... You know, I, I was forced to be a little patient with it, and it was one of the better horror novels I've read in years. Uh, Drood, I'm not a big Dickens fan, so I didn't get into so much, but uh, I do recommend The Terror. It's about two lost ice ships from the 1830s, and we still don't actually know what happened to them. And um, The Terror point? was effective enough that my husband, who absolutely loathes and despises being like any temperature below 70 degrees uh, when that cold oh god just front read it with a blanket States. and some soup uh he went when the cold front hit the lower part of arizona <coughs> in uh february he went okay the thermostat says it's 13 below outside i need to go out for a few minutes because i want to see what it was like for the guys in the terror in the franklin expedition yeah, it, they're said, looking for the northwest passage bye. i should have specified <laughs> yeah so it's in it's all in the arctic there but anyway i think i'd like to talk yeah, you'll about probably clear it out here just about. I'd like to talk about Tim Powers and David Louis Edelman. Um, Tim Powers, um, the classic rock end of this spectrum, but in a funky way. Um, the, um, uh, things are not what they seem. What actually happened was, that's Tim Powers' thing, um, basically uh, in novels like The Anubis Gates, The Stress of Her Regard, oh, and, oh, yeah, and On Stranger Tides, which is the new Pirates of the Caribbean film, but don't hold that against it. Um, it's... Um, uh, Tim Powers, um, the stress of her regard, for example, um, tells us that actually the lives of the 18th century romantic poets were not about laudanum poetry and shagging each other, as we always thought, but actually about a group of calcified um, alien stroke vampires um, who have interacted with the various different poets in various different ways, causing every single historical action that we've seen associated with this group of people. And actually, at the end of it, you go, you know, that makes so much sense. <laughs> Uh, this is Tim's thing. Um, he does it for um, Philby Burgess and McLean, British spies in Declare. Um, he does it for, um, well, there's a time travel novel of his, The Anubis Gate, which is also awesome. And again, involves various historical personages and explains everything as a conspiracy. He takes perfectly normal history and makes a conspiracy out of it. It's the opposite of what Dan Brown does. It's really good. <laughs> and in the sense of it being really good. Um, and finally, uh, David Louis Edelman, um, the Infoquake um, books. Um, Infoquake, um, he's a lesser-known um, American SF author. Um, it, they are business thrillers um, set in the future about telepresence, about um, apps for the brain. Our hero is somebody who makes apps to change brains and bodies, but mainly brains. You buy an app to uh, get a nice poker face, uh, to be able to be charming. Um, it's uh, about um, climbing to the top of the sales charts, beating your rivals, people in meetings going, if we do this, will they respond? Um, the, I was really upset with him when in book two, somebody fired two shots 
because the first book is completely without violence and is nonetheless tense and powerful and exciting stuff. It also reminds me, Torah, but his future world is a world of telepresencing, where people stand in the corner of their rooms and interact in meetings around the globe, and nobody really travels very much. So, of course, there comes a point where somebody has to open a drawer and our hero realizes he cannot open that drawer because he's 3,000 miles away. Um, it's really, really good business thrillers set in the future. It also reminds me terribly, because David is a convention stalwart, of our lives at science fiction conventions. <laughs> of how we are fueled by coffee, we are all trying to climb those sales charts, we are all interacting with each other in a very familiar way in these books. They're great fun. You know, I must admit, that it's not the best start in the world. 20 pages into InfoQuake, you'll be thinking that Cornell sold me a pup here, but give it, a, <laughs> give it another 10 pages and it's fine. <laughs> so, um, InfoQuake by David Louis Edelman. There we are. we are. We are about out of time. Do you guys have anything else, last thoughts? Three minutes. Um, oh, because I like to recommend uh, odd American stuff set in places that I live that people usually make fun of but uh, treat seriously, Sharon McCrum. Uh, the problem was I started with her best book, which is called She Walks These Hills, and it's absolutely phenomenal. It's about a ghost woman walking essentially the Appalachian Trail. Uh, she was uh, captured by, by Indians as a kid and, 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 and got away, but as soon as she got home, her fiancé murdered her, and no one knows why. And it ties into a modern murder, and, and they're delightful. I love Sharon McCrum, so. Uh, just briefly, uh, somebody I uh, <coughs> am very much enjoying is Harry Connolly, who oh, is basically, um, if, uh, if Jim Butcher's Harry Dresden was crankier and lived in the Pacific Northwest. Also, I'm very shy. Sorry. <laughs> They're talking off mic about how lovely Harry is. No, he, lives in, he lives in Seattle, so I know him. It's, and he's very, very nice. She knows everyone. I'm very, very shy and quiet. I can, don't know if you can tell that or not. Is she very, very shy and quiet? <laughs> totally. <laughs> I like people. And yet you're a writer, which means you only get to interact under these circumstances. It's why you can't shut me up when you get me at these things. I'm just like, woo! <laughs> and this is my last day of having people to talk to. So, you get home, it's a husband and a cat. And he's been with me for 10 years. He's tired of me by now, so. <laughs> which one? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, hey, when I, like, when, when I come home from something, the cat is asleep on the bed like, oh, it's you. I know the husband is home when he's gone to park his motorcycle in a building two blocks away when the cat leaps off the bed and goes running to the door to wait. Oh. I'm like, really? <laughs> you have an abusive relationship with your cat. Well, I'm home all day with the cat, so I'm, I'm old hat, you know. Um, if, if you guys get a chance, check out the Mysterious Galaxies booth. You're right under the 600 sign. Yes, in fact, uh, well, I'm headed right back there because some nice people are going to give me my travel docs at my table. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. for all for coming out. Thanks for that ridiculous hour. Hi, folks. This is the Emperor. I'm here to remind you to listen to the Emperor's Court every Saturday from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern right here at vtwproductions.com. That's the Emperor's Court, your three-hour break from Internet porn.